1: Now, the planning fallacy is another of these cognitive biases and basically it relates to the fa- it's about the fact that we tend to make plans as though they will come true. Again, we tend to make plans and imagine that they will be complete, completely come true. In reality, the plans that we make are the best-case scenarios. Now, the, you have this famous saying, failing to plan is planning to fail. That's a very bad saying. <laughs> it's a very misleading saying because the plans that we make are overwhelmingly best-case scenario plans. The reality is that failing... A much better saying that I uh, tell, tell, tell my clients to use is failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail, because you're going to meet problems. Your plans will not survive contact with the enemy. I mean, mine don't. I'm sure you've had cases where your plans didn't survive contact with the enemy. Yeah. But, have you invest have you actually looked at what kind of problems might come up? Have you addressed these problems in advance? It's very easy to, to do actually in your planning process if you take this not intuitive, very counterintuitive step of imagine that your plans fail you know just imagine that. Think about your plans, your big plan for your next project, you know your next move in your career or let's say next pro, next product that you're launching. Imagine that it failed, completely failed. Mm. Now think about what are all the reasons that it failed. Think about, consider all the reasons that it failed and then see what you can do in advance to address these reasons. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Dr. Kleb.
2: Now we all know That the idea of trusting your gut, follow your intuition, follow what your compass is telling you is something that many people have said. Many people have given you that piece of advice. It's been something your dad has said, your mom has said, maybe your brother or someone in your circle of influence. But what if that was the wrong piece of advice to give? What if there was something else that you should be following and we've been getting it wrong all this time? That's what Dr. Klepp discusses. Now, you might agree, you might disagree, but something that you will at least get from this interview is his frame of reference and why he believes this to be so. And he has a bunch of case studies. He talks about how businesses have done that, how individuals have done that, and how it's taken them away from their highest self. So this is all about being the best version of yourself, but also making the most informed decision as opposed to a decision That is based on feelings. Interested yet? (laughs) I'm sure you are, but make sure you take some notes. I would love to hear your thoughts. If you agree, let me know. If you disagree, let me know and make sure you get his book. It's really, really insightful. Also, use your difference to make a difference. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's episode is with Dr. Gleb Sipruski, who is a cognitive neuroscientist and expert on behavioral economics and decision making. As CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, he spent over two decades consulting, coaching, speaking, and training hundreds of clients across North America, Europe, and Australia, including Aflac, IBM, Honda, Wells Fargo, and the World Wildlife Fund. Now, with over 15 years in academia, including seven as a professor at the at the Ohio State University, <laughs> as, as they like to say, the Ohio State University, <laughs> he published dozens of peer-reviewed uh, pieces in academic journals, such as Behavior and Social Issues, and the Journal of Social and Political Psychology. His thought leadership is featured in Fast Company, CBS News, Time, CNBC, Inc. Magazine, and elsewhere. We are going to be talking about his new book, which is Never Go With Your Gut, how pioneering
1: leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters welcome to the show thank you so much for having me on tayo it's a pleasure
2: uh, the pleasure is mine now your book has been described as moneyball for management and for those people that don't know moneyball moneyball is, uh, is a baseball movie but it is based on uh, you know the, 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 uh, one of the uh, gms being able to use analytics to, to pick a team and I'm fascinated by this title because you say never go with your gut. I've often
1: heard the opposite. Mm -hmm. You have. And this is the big problem in business as it was in baseball before Moneyball, where managers in baseball used to go with their gut. That was a tendency. And then somebody figured out that, hey, instead of going with their gut, how about we go with our heads and actually look at what works? Let's go away from gut-based baseball and let's go toward evidence-based baseball. So the guy who invented evidence-based baseball, the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, Billy Bean, had a wonderful season. He, the Oakland Athletics, as a result of him not going with his gut, using evidence, won a record-breaking 20 games in a row, and for a minor small team, comparatively speaking, that was. Wonderful. So right now, the same approach is being applied to business where we're going away from gut based business decisions to evidence based business decisions. Now, doesn't that seem like something very rational and reasonable and something that would make sense? <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful to have 20 years of record breaking profits, uh, you know, tw- 20 quarters of record breaking profits in a row? But business leaders don't tend to do that because they still have that old idea that they should go with their gut.
2: I I would love that. I would love twenty record-breaking quarters. That would be amazing. I'm signing up for that.
1: (laughs) There you go. There you go. But
2: but your your story is interesting because your dad told you, you know, basically to always go with your gut, and and you end up making some, uh, you know, ended up making some bad decisions. So can you walk us through your personal experience with this approach?
1: Yes, absolutely. So when I was a kid, you know, little kid, my dad always told me to go with my gut, and you know, I he was my dad. I listened to him, uh, and I decided to make the number of decisions to go with my gut that led to some pretty bad outcomes in relationships and kind of some early financial dealings with that I had as a teenager. And at the same time, I saw my dad make some really bad decisions for going with his gut. Now, he's a real estate agent, and so he had some variable income. And at some point, he hid much of a lot of his income from my mom, you know, pretended to make less money than he did in real estate commissions. And he bought some, uh, how, kind of an apartment on the side. Now, once she found out several years later that he was hiding a bunch of money from her, that led to a big blowout fight. And they separated for a while and then eventually they got back together, but you could never really trust him again. So that really taught me that going with your gut is really bad in, you know, this from when I was a kid, it taught me to be really suspicious of this idea to go with your gut. And then I grew up and I saw people making terrible decisions when they're going with their gut. I mean, I was born in 81, and then I came of age in when I, I was 18 in 1999, when there was a dot-com boom. A lot of money was spent on various dot-com properties, like Webvan, Boo.com, Pets.com, and so on. And then when 21 was, a, I was 21 in 2002, when so many of them went bust. Yeah. <laughs> so supposedly smart investors We invested billions of dollars into these and they all went bust. And again, that was an example of my coming of age. And of course, you had the horrible decision-making by leaders in Enron, Tyco, and WorldCom to use illegal fraudulent accounting methods to hide their losses from the dot-com bust. And again, you saw these people going with their guts. They made really bad, terrible decisions and look at what happened. So that led me to really decided to study this topic why do people go with their guts? How do we make bad decisions, and how do we make better decisions?
2: Yeah, well, okay, so you, you hit on something that you brought up all these uh, Enron, and, and I remember Enron when I was in middle school and those yeah. moments, but there have been even more recent things. You, uh, as When, when you, you were pitched to me, you said that you like to talk about more recent headlines. So let's talk yes. about... Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk. Uh, oh, and So I'm very fascinated by this. I remember there was a particular point in 2018 when he kept having all these tweets that just mm-hmm. tanked share or brought it up or you know, people were saying that maybe he's overworked or maybe he was mm-hmm. taking drugs or whatever was going on. Can you explain that situation? Because it sounds like you have an opinion on that. And then obviously there's Boeing and uh, there are many other recent things that have happened uh, with leaders sure. who are do- doing things on social media that seem to be like,
1: whoa, What's happening? Yep. So Elon Musk is a great example of someone who tweeted with his gut. He feels authentic. He feels like this is the right thing to do. So he sends out a tweet about some guy in Australia who was rescuing the kids. Uh, I think it was Australia, whatever. In East Asia, who was rescuing the kids. Thailand, that was it. uh, Being a pedophile. And I was like, wow, how can you as a top business leader make such statements? And then he made statements of, of that he would take his company private, equating the, the price uh, of the private company, you know, to 420, which is code word for marijuana. And I'm like, why would you ever do that? He feels like he wants to uh, make an impression on people. And he feels like he wants this attention. And that's coming from a gut place. A lot of leaders, when they got to the top level, they seek attention more than they seek profits. And that, of course, is pretty horrible for a company. You have many leaders who, you know, you have the saying that power corrupts. And I think Elon Musk has been in that camp where power corrupts and he has been corrupted by this power. And that's again him going with his gut. Now that's one example, Elon Musk. We have even bigger examples from terrible decision making by companies. I mean, look at Adam Newman with WeWork. That company was valued at about 75 billion. So anywhere between 60 to 90 billion about six months ago. Then Adam Newman was very insistent on trying to have an IPO, initial public offering of stocks. And so then uh, investors were investigating the company, and they saw what a screwed up governance structure it had, where Adam Newman owned a large majority of power in the company. And of course, the valuation of the company depends on the quality of the founder, because it was a new company, it's sort of a startup, even though it's valued at 75 billion. So they saw that he couldn't be trusted; that he's not trustworthy if because of the structure of the company. And the eventual valuation of this company fell to something like seven billion. Seven billion. Uh That's an order Uh of magnitude from 75 billion to seven billion. Literally an order of magnitude. And and this is because he had a this because he had a lot of. He wasn't being honest about the 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 control that he had in the company. Yep. He was not being honest about the controls he had in the company. He wasn't being honest about the governance structure. And the company's valuation rested a great deal on him as an individual and the trust that everybody placed in him as kind of a genius of the future. And now <laughs> they saw that he couldn't be trusted, and the company's valuation went to $7 billion. It's
2: well, <laughs> wow. that, that's that's <laughs> right.
1: That's great. So I I didn't mean to interrupt, but are you saying that those two
2: decisions are gut decisions So the Elon Musk and um, the the founder of WeWork that they went with their gut? So Elon went with his gut with the tweet and Mm -hmm. I guess the the founder of WeWork decided not to be honest and that was his gut decision. Couldn't that be argued that that's just not, not necessarily a gut decision? It's just maybe they just made a bad choice. You know, what if someone said that? Just, I don't know, they weren't thinking straight, I guess.
1: Well, the not thinking straight comes from the gut. You know, we have two areas in which we can make decisions. We can make decisions from our emotions or we can make decisions from our reason. Now, the vast majority of business leaders trust their emotions, which is their gut. You know, our emotions, when we think of emotions, that's the gut. That's the same thing. When you say you're coming from your heart, you're coming from your emotions, you're coming from your gut, you're coming from where you feel. And that's the basic fundamental mistake that so many business leaders, professionals, entrepreneurs make. They equate what they feel is right with what is actually right. And that's a horrible mistake. Equating what you feel to be right with what is actually right and best and true and accurate is one of the worst things that you could decide. Adam Newman decided that the governance structure where he controlled, he controlled shares that basically had 10 times as much voting power as every other share. And this was not known before the IPO was revealed, was uh, going on. So because people didn't know this, the outside investors, the company was protected. Now, he should have very much changed the structure of his voting power when the IPO was going on. Because the point of an IPO, everybody knows this, is to create transparency and accountability. When you have a public company, it needs to be much more transparent than a private one. So he tried to do something that completely does not make logical sense. He tried to keep a lack of transparency and accountability in a public company. Mm -hmm. And others, others told him that. You know, other leaders at uh, WeWork told him that SoftBank, which was the major investor into uh, the WeWork, told him that, no, this is not what you should be doing. You shouldn't be doing an IPO at this time. But right. he went ahead and did it anyway. This is a very irrational decision-making process, the same way that other managers of baseball companies that weren't Oakland Athletics were making their decisions on how to go forward. And he lost out big time. A huge order of magnitude loss for him and for the company as a whole. And this is an example of what happens when leaders go with their gut. Now, you also mentioned Boeing. We shouldn't forget that. That's a bunch <laughs> of, so we talked about two you know, more startup companies. You know, Tesla is less of a startup, it's more of an older company than we were. But let's think about Boeing. It's a huge, huge company, very old. And look what happened. They made a decision to very much rush the production of 737 MAX. If you look right now, investigations are revealing that a lot of engineers were telling the leadership that, hey, the the plane is not yet ready for production. We shouldn't be putting it out there. But the leadership was like, ah, not, nothing will happen. We have a great record of history of safety. I mean, Boeing is very has a very good record of safety so nothing will happen i'm sure the plane is fine it's just a little glitch whatever it'll be fixed and we have the horrible outcome where obviously people died that's terrible so it's loss of life but also and also at the same time huge loss of money for boeing their planes they they've lost a lot of plane orders and the planes have been grounded for what over a year now. Uh, will will be grounded over a year in a few mo- in a couple of months. But they we know that they'll be grounded for that period of time. So Boeing and and this is a basic human error that we make as human beings. And here's the error. This is one of the cognitive biases that I talk about in the book. Never go With your gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. A typical tendency of the human mind is called the normalcy bias. It's one of the cognitive biases that we all have. It's the decision errors that we make. So the normalcy bias says that we tend to avo- we tend to not be able to predict disasters, problems, serious serious problems that are different from what happened before. So WeWork wasn't Adam Newman at WeWork wasn't able to predict the disaster that would happen with the IPO because he never did an IPO before. Boeing wasn't able to predict the disaster that happened with seven thirty seven Max because they had a long record of safety. And, of course, uh, Elon Musk wasn't able to predict what would happen when he tried to you know make the tweet about making the company go private. that eventually ended up in the company and him each having to pay twenty million dollars to the SEC. Now he's in a lawsuit with the SEC, the Security Exchanges Commission, which might result in him being removed from the company. So it's one yeah. of the, the normalcy bias is one of the biggest problems that, leaders suffer from, that they can't predict, that they tend to avoid, or that they assume that if po- problems haven't happened in the future, the, in the past, in the future, everything will be normal, problems won't happen.
2: Yeah, and you, you know, I, I love that you brought these examples because I noticed that as well with uh, Uber CEO, former CEO, Travis <laughs> Kalanick. And my job, by the way, is I study biases, so I, I, this is a fascinating topic to me. I, I do a lot of diversity and inclusion and my job is to go into companies to help them work through mm. unconscious biases and things that are making them feel like they're not inclusive. And a lot of what I study is, uh, you know, I, I, I found that there are, you know, the four reasons that I've noticed that biases occur, especially implicit and unconscious bias, and it's based on story, fear... Security and avoidance, and with the story, you know, obviously what you told, just like a dad, it could be a religion, it could be education or philosophy that's been passed on from your sphere of influence, and then with fear, maybe you had a bad experience mm-hmm. or a series of bad experience from someone, and and uh, and, and, and and that uh, you know that you know that influenced you, and you know security, a way for you to feel safer by yourself, and avoidance, you want to avoid and dodge difficult situations. So, mm-hmm. as you're saying all these things, it, it's, it's, it's reminding me of reasons why people sometimes would bring me into companies because they are then reactive because they've, some CEOs have made bad decisions based on these things. Now, Travis, he didn't, he, the company was growing quickly. Mm-hmm. And he, to him, he was going with his gut by saying, no, just go with a profit, 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 profit. But he mm. wasn't caring for the people, whether they were bringing in sexual harassment claims mm-hmm. or understanding that and he underestimated that people matter as opposed to profits and it's Mm -hmm. an age-old thing in business where you're like well look we are our we're the hottest company in the world essentially Mm -hmm. we're growing everywhere but I guess he underestimated the power of what um, making people feel so it's interesting that you bring Mm -hmm. this and it happens in business Um, uh, but but I guess the reason I'm saying all these things is that is it do you think it's because of social media now that this these things are now becoming more prevalent because I I know I've lived I've lived under two dictatorships. <laughs> you know, I'm from Nigeria. And I oh, the wow. okay. first nine years of my life was under two dictatorships. And I know before when we when I'm studying leaders, whether it's you know the French monarchy or the British monarchy audiences, there have been times when these type of behaviors have just happened. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm curious to to, to hear your thoughts. Do you think there's a parallel with or there's a correlation rather with the social media and the um, uh, exposure and accountability that that gives us that really exposes these decisions more. And, you know, do you think there's a connection there?
1: Yeah, I think there's a connection. Let me make sure uh, I, I hit an Uber and Travis. So what happened there is a classic example of the normalcy bias. He couldn't imagine the kind of negative consequences that would come because of the sexual harassment lawsuits. So he, he it, it wasn't in his head. So he wasn't thinking about it going forward. And of course, you do diversity inclusion work. And as you know yourself, it's much better to do diversity inclusion work before a problem occurs as opposed right. to responsibly. Yeah, you know, proactive versus reactive. That's the best yeah. way. You don't want to be saying, yeah. like, oh, this happened, so I have to do this. Yeah. Exactly, and so this is the basis of all of my work, that people tend to be incredibly reactive. They tend to fall for the normalcy bias. They tend to say, okay, because we haven't had this problem before, I don't need to care about it. And they are not proactive. They're not thinking ahead of what kind of problems might occur here. The same sort of problems that occur elsewhere, You know, the same sort of problem can occur in your company, ranging from not thinking about the governance structure to diversity inclusion issues, you know, all of these things might occur very easily. And if you don't think about them, take steps to address them, you're going to be in deep trouble. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of the, a lot of what my book talks about, as you know, having read. So going to social, I just want to make sure to hit that. Now, going oh, on okay. to social media, this is an important element of both what makes people more accountable but also what puts people in more trouble because as we saw with elon musk it's social media that put him in trouble you know if he was just making these statements to his friends you know maybe his friends would think that uh, you know maybe they would judge him negatively but he wouldn't be caught in court of about the lawsuit with a pedophile comment or with a comment about taking the company private so it's both both of these things are true the social media is opening up the doors it's making things more visible more transparent both the bad things and the good things yeah. and if you have more if you have some problems in your company you're going to result it's they're going to result in being revealed much more as a result of social media right kind of you've seen i mean there are a number of things with starbucks let's say when a manager at starbucks kicked out a couple of uh, african american folks for just hanging out yeah. and having a business meeting, that blew up on social media, it went viral, right? That, that's one thing. But also when some uh, leaders of companies make stupid statements on social media, th- yeah. those also go viral. So that uh, happens as well. No, that's, that's very important to, to talk about. So let's stay on biases here. I want you to talk
2: more about what cognitive biases are and <laughs> how we individually can tell which
1: cognif- cognitive biases we're most vulnerable to. Sure. So the first one uh, is a big one. What are cognitive biases? Now, we have to understand that where our decisions come from. How do we make decisions? We don't think about this stuff. We're just like, oh, this is a decision. Let me go forward with it. We don't step back and say, hey, why did I make this decision? Why did my mind come to making this decision? And the reason or the way that we make our decisions, according to extensive research, recent research on this topic, is largely emotional. About 80 to 90% of our decisions intuitively come from our emotions, how we feel about a topic rather than analytical data gathering process, how we think about a topic. We just rationalize them after the fact. We feel a certain way, we go with it, and we say, well... I, I made this decision because of something you know, rational, whereas in reality you made it because of emotional reasons. So this is definitely the case based on extensive research on this. So where do our emotions come from then is the question. Well, our emotions mainly come from the gut reactions that are based in the Savannah environment. Our emotions aren't evolved for the current contemporary business environment. This is something that's really important for us to recognize. Our emotions are evolved for the Savannah environment when we lived in small tribes of a couple of dozen people each and we survived due to having a very strong tribal response, you know, liking people who look like us, you know, you do diverse inclusion work, right? This is a part of it. Liking people who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us, who feel like us, that's one element. And not liking people who don't belong to our tribe. The other element of tribalism is that we want to rise to the top of the tribal hierarchy because that guarantees a survival within the context of the tribe. So that's a tribalism. The other element that's very important in that Savannah environment
2: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Is the g- fight or flight response where we need to, well, we needed to get away from saber-tooth tigers. You might've heard of it as saber tigers. And so we have a very strong stress response to any negative external input, much stronger than it needs to be. Now for our ancestors we it was good to jump at a hundred shadows than to miss one saber tooth tiger. That's how they guaranteed survival. In our current world, the, you know, you get a nasty email. You should not respond to it as though it's a saber tooth tiger. <laughs> it's not going to threaten your life. Right. But our emotions, our intuitions, respond to it as though it's a saber tooth tiger and other sort of problems in their business environment. So those dynamics, tribalism, and the fight or flight response explain a great deal, not everything, but a great deal of our cognitive biases. And cognitive biases are the systemic errors that we make, like the normalcy bias that I talked about, the systemic errors that we make that result in us making poor decisions, decisions that deviate away from our goals. Good decisions are decisions when you look at the research on this topic, good decisions are decisions that bring us closer to our goals. Bad decisions are ones that take us further from our goals. So cognitive biases are the patterns of mistakes that we make that take us further from our goals. There are over 100 cognitive biases. So folks can look up cognitive biases on Wikipedia and they'll find over 100 cognitive biases. There is a huge list, more being added every month as we discover it in more research because this is kind of cutting-edge research. My book, The Never Go With Your Gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters, goes over the 30 biggest cognitive biases that are problems for leaders in businesses and nonprofits. So it goes over these 30 cognitive biases, talks about case studies, and how do you actually address them, avoid them, and stop them from really ruining your business, ruining your career. So that is what cognitive biases are about. Now, a second part. Let me stop here and see if you want to ask about anything else about cognitive biases before I jump into how do you know what cognitive biases are the worst for you?
2: Oh no, no, you you did a great job. I'm I'm just so curious to to hear <laughs> uh, how we can figure this out within ourselves because self awareness is a big part of the podcast. Uh, this is cross cultural yep. as well self awareness, so I'm very curious. Excellent. Um,
1: yeah. So the important thing for cognitive biases is to look at specific behaviors that are associated with biases and see if you're falling into these behaviors. I'll give you an example. I tend to, as a person, be excessively optimistic. What does that mean? That means that I tend to not look at the risks intuitively. I tend to look at opportunities. I don't tend to look at threats. And there many, many business leaders like me, some business leaders I are a company, as uh, Taya mentioned, and this is something that is a tendency of many business leaders to be excessively optimistic. They think that the future is going to be bright, that you know the grass is greener on the other side of the hill. Now, this causes me a lot of problems because I intuitively don't see risks that are coming along. I don't see threats and I get tripped up by them. So that, and there are a number of ways I, I won't talk right now about how I address this, but there are a number of ways of addressing the optimism bias effectively. So that comes from me. Now, how do I know I'm prone to the optimism bias? I see my behavior, observe my behavior. I know the optimism bias causes people who feel it, to ignore risks, and I see that I tend to ignore risks, I tend to think that things will turn out better than they actually do. So that's a way to look at, hey, here's a behavior and what kind of biases are associated with specific behaviors. My book, the last chapter of the book, uh, Go has an assessment of the 30 most common cognitive biases that cause problems for businesses, it specifically asks you, hey, Have you noticed this behavior? So let me give you another example. How many times over the past year in your company have you observed projects run over time, 10% over time or budget? So think about that question. Mm -hmm. How how often has that happened? Now, when I give that out in my trainings, uh, I get anywhere... Answers anywhere from you know 10% to 95%. That was <laughs> like my that was my last uh, training. Somebody said no, wait, no. Somebody said 98% of my last training. I'm like, okay. Wow, that's a <laughs> <Yeah>. lot. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That, that, that's a lot. So that relates to the planning fallacy. Now the planning fallacy is another of these cognitive biases, and basically it relates to the fa- it's about the fact that we tend to make plans as though they will come true. Again. We tend to make plans and imagine that they will be complete, completely come true. In reality, the plans that we make are the best case scenarios. Now, you have this famous saying, failing to plan is planning to fail. That's a very bad saying. It's a very misleading saying because the plans that we make are overwhelmingly best case scenario plans. The reality is that failing, a much better saying that I tell, tell, tell my clients to use is failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail because you're going to meet problems. Your plans will not survive contact with the enemy. I mean, mine don't. I'm sure you've had cases where your plans didn't survive contact with the enemy. But have you invest, have you actually looked at what kind of problems might come up? Have you addressed these problems in advance? It's very easy to to do, actually, in your planning process, if you take this not intuitive, very counterintuitive step of imagine that your plans failed. You know, just imagine that. Think about your plans, your big plan for your next project, you know, your next move in your career, or let's say next next product that you're launching. Imagine that it failed, completely failed. Mm. Now think about what are all the reasons that it failed. Imagine, Think about, consider all the reasons that it failed, and then see what you can do in advance to address these reasons. You can take a lot of steps. You know, Let's say your next career move failed because you didn't have sufficient training in a certain area of whatever it has to do with your career. So then get training before you take that next step. That's an example. There are many more examples or with the project, maybe you didn't research the market well enough. Maybe you should do do a little bit more market research before you launch that product. So there are a number of ways you can address these problems in advance if you actually make effective plans. So that's another example. That's the planning fallacy. And And the whole assessment at the end of the book goes through the 30 most dangerous judgment errors and helps you address them by noticing these behaviors and giving you specific and concrete steps that you can take to address each one of these problems.
2: Wow, wow, yeah. So anyone listening, if you if you are really curious about that, then you really need to check the book because there are so many things. you you know research has found that, that there are more than one hundred cognitive biases that cause us to make terrible decisions. So <laughs> I can only imagine just what you 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 provided for them, okay? All right, so something I'm curious about. so you, you know your 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 Gleb Sipursky. tell me tell me more about your 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 background and and your, and um your cultural upbringing and the reason i'm asking this is not only because this is a cross cultural podcast where so people understand how to connect across cultures but i wonder if biases shifted within you given the different cultures you grew up in
0: hmm
1: well sure i'll be happy to t- share about uh, the my cultural context my background is that i grew up in a small eastern european country called moldova and it's just to the southwest of Ukraine and east of Romania. It was taken over by the Soviet Union in 1945, and it was liberated in 1991. And as I mentioned, I was born in 81, so I was 10 in 1991, and my parents, very gladly for me, chose to take me to the United States, and so I grew up there from well, since I was 10. Now, the, I'm especially glad for that because Moldova, as I found out, uh, is one of the least happy countries in the world. It's about as happy as war-torn Rwanda. And uh, I'm sure it's much less happy than Nigeria. <laughs> oh, wow. Because, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. So yeah. It's, it's, it's very, un, very unhappy, much less happy than the countries around it by comparison. So I, I'm not exactly sure for all the reasons why. So I grew up in New York City, and that was kind of my home. And then I moved around. I got a a master's at Harvard. I got my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, Go Heels. And then, like I said, I taught for seven years as a professor at Ohio State, Go Bucks. So that's (laughs) my kind of background. I don't think my biases changed during that period. What changed was... As I began to learn about cognitive biases in my degree in history of behavioral science, the PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, I began to be more aware of my biases. I'm like, oh, well, this is the screwed-up way that I've that I've been all this time and the bad decisions that I've been making. And I didn't know that. Well, hmm, that's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. let's say the optimism bias when I found out about that. I was like, uh, I, wish, I wish I wasn't so optimistic, but uh, here are specific things I can do to address it. And uh, let's say the overconfidence bias, which is another one where people tend to be way too overconfident about their decisions. Uh, and I could go into that, but that was another thing that I'm prone to. And the planning fallacy is another problem uh, for me and for other folks. And so knowing about all of these things, I was able to take effective steps to address them. And of course, as part of my consulting and coaching and training, I was able to help my clients address them and am able to help my clients address them. So that's kind of what I do. So it wasn't a change in the cognitive biases. It was more of an awareness of them and then specific steps taken to address them.
2: That's interesting.
1: And if I'm even taking something that's really
2: important here, you're talking about the importance of awareness. I I think a lot of people don't even try to think that they 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 have a bias. and the mm. thing is bias makes it makes us human. It makes us you know that's yeah. how we've uh, it's a protective mechanism. Now it can lead to bad behavior, as we've highlighted. But if we don't even take the step to try and make the unconscious conscious or or you know work through the implicit biases, it then becomes very, very problematic because what's happening yes. is our brain is just going to pick, you know automatically <laughs> what do we fed into it. And so, mm-hmm. In order to to work, I always say we need to fill our ignorance and fear gaps. What are the things mm-hmm. that cause us fear, and what are the things that you know we need to understand more? And I yes. love your yeah, I love your eight step decision making model. Um, and you say identify the need for a decision to be made, gather mm-hmm. relevant info from a variety of perspectives. This is the I love that part. Decide goals, paint clear vision for desired icon, and, and then develop clear decision making criteria to valid options. Then generate mm-hmm. viable options that can achieve the goals, weigh the options, pick the best of the bunch, implement the option that you choose and evaluate implementation that, Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it's so important because you have to constantly be evaluating. It's not a fixed thing and you have to constantly be gathering information. It's very different. And I Mm -hmm. asked about question, the culture earlier, because there were many things that were quote unquote, traditional Depending mm. depend on where you're from, and was seen as normal that are not yes. the same today. <laughs> so depending on the
1: circumstance, so it's you can't have um, a fixed mindset with this. Yes, I think it's very important to not have a fixed mindset. It, it's very important to have the growth mindset, the idea that hey. We all are biased, and by the way, if you think you're not biased, you're falling into a specific bias called the bias blind spot. where <laughs> that's a specific cognitive bias where we tend, we are, we or people who fall into that bias are so arrogant as to imagine that they have no biases and they're perfect decision makers. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I can <laughs> guarantee to you that there is no perfect decision-maker. I am not a perfect decision-maker by far. You know, I know the steps that I can take to improve my decision-making, like using the eight-step decision-making model, but that is something that I need to do in order to improve my decision-making. None of us is perfect. And so we need to be really aware of these problems. And even more, even the step before awareness, I would say, awareness is really important, but even before awareness, awareness is kind of like a rational thing. It's a tactic. But even more important than awareness is a sense of humility. Humility is an emotional thing. And leaders who are arrogant, who say, oh, I go with my gut, my gut is always right, have a lack of humility. And mm. humil- lack of humility lack of acknowledge- will result in leaders never being able to acknowledge that they're wrong. This is one of the worst qualities of leaders imaginable: not being able to acknowledge that you're wrong, thinking that you're always right. There was a study by uh, Leadership IQ of over a thousand board members who fired their CEOs of CEOs of for-profits, non-profits, whatever, and they found the study found that. About twenty-four percent of the leaders who were fired were fired because of denialism, meaning what they meant was denying negative reality about the company. And the leaders just were willing were ignoring it. They weren't taking steps to address this negative reality. They were just saying, Oh, things are fine, don't worry about it. And that's why the board members ended up firing them.
0: <laughs> wow. So yeah. <laughs>
1: This is uh, this sort of arrogance, this lack of awareness, this thinking of, you know, I'm at the top of this company, therefore the company must be doing well. Versus thinking, oh, you know, I'm at the top of this company. The company may may or may not be doing well. What steps can I take to make sure that it's doing well? That is a much more humble attitude to take rather than the arrogant attitude of saying that I can do no wrong. But there are so many leaders who have that arrogant attitude. And there are so many followers who struggle. You know, (laughs) I'm often brought in by a C-suite official officer who... Knows that uh, his leader is or her leader is not really, <laughs> not really um, making good decisions, and they want me to help the company make better decisions. Partially because the leader is really arrogant, and it takes <laughs> a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to when the leader is so arrogant, and when you need to steer this leader toward humility. And there are definitely steps that you can take to do that. You you focus on the bottom line. You focus on showing the leader how it's a big strength. To acknowledge that you're wrong and to orient toward the best things to do in the future. But humility, that emotion of humility, is incredibly important as a basis for all of this strategic work.
0: You
2: know what? I was going to ask about that because you know I'm sure you get asked the same question. But when when I go around, and I know you've been on the book tours. People ask, well, I feel this way. I know what needs to be done. I've done the work, but I'm in a culture that is detrimental to that. They don't like this, they don't want growth, they don't want yeah. to admit that. I, I'm thinking about the, the. let's think about the Uber situation. Yes. Let's think about all the people that were in that situation where it, it appears they couldn't get to Travis, for example. Yes. What mm-hmm. do you then do there? Because it can feel like there's nothing you can do if you, your CEO is hell-bent on making sure that his way is mm-hmm. the
1: only way, and, and you know what can you do? Yeah, well, the easy answer to that is to leave the company, but that's like the easy answer and the flip and the glib answer that doesn't really help many people who are uh, for whom it's going to take a while and lots of efforts to leave the company or maybe they really care about the company or maybe their stock options haven't invested yet. (laughs) 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 In those sorts of situations. And in general, when you want to bring about change within the company, the most important thing that people don't, react, don't realize they need to do is focus on the process. What they tend to do is focus on the outcomes. Let's say you know, they want, they think that there's a big problem in growth. The company needs to grow more. So they push for growth. And then they get a lot of pushback from others who think the company shouldn't be growing. They're doing well as it is. And so they're fighting with with this other person over growth, or let's say, you know, whether to enter a new market, whether to enter uh, the uh, the European market or not, whether to expand. There's a lot of fighting over the specifics. Now, a much better strategy for folks who I talk to about this is to focus on the process, focus on how you make the decision, not the outcome of the decision. So these are the strategies. So the eight-step model, right? It's everyone, when you look at it, to the person that you're to the people let's say in the C suite you bring them the eight step decision making model and say hey you know we've been fighting about this issue for a while How about we use a formal decision-making model and we go through it? It's an effective research-based technique and it will help us make a better decision. That's a much more effective uh, approach rather than saying I'm right, no, you're right, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm right, no, you're wrong. That that doesn't help anyone. But when you agree on a shared decision-making process, that's an incredibly more effective approach to anything because then everyone has buy-in. They feel okay, the decision-making process is fair. And when you go for the steps and you see, you know, let's say you decide that it makes a lot of sense to do the expansion into Europe based on this decision-making model, then everyone feels that it's fair. And they went through the process, they evaluated the evidence, and you can go ahead with the decision knowing that you have buy-in around everyone. And the most important thing, again, is for everyone to buy-in around the process, into the process of decision-making, rather than just Whoever shouts the loudest wins, right, <laughs> which is right. what tends to happen very often, and that's really bad. that's that's interesting. and and so
2: it, it's you have to find your CEO in a position where he or she or they can listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, gotcha.
1: you, All right. you don't need, you don't need to get them to specifically listen to you about the issue. This is the crucial thing. You don't want to try to push them to expand into Europe. This is not what you should be doing. You should be pushing them on how the process of decision-making is made. You know, look, Don't, don't think about the sausage. Look at how the sausage is made. That's what you want to be focusing on. You want to be focusing on the process. And once you get the CEO on board with the effective research-based process, then the decision itself will naturally flow into the best decision for the company after the CEO is on board with the process. Gotcha. All right, perfect. Well,
2: th- th- tell me tell me more about your goal with the with the with the book. what what is the the dream and, and the end result? What would you like people to achieve?
1: So my let me tell you a little bit about my personal values. My personal values are utilitarian. That means that I care about reducing suffering. So the reason I got into this business in the first place when I saw the oh, the Enron, the Worldcom, the Tycos, do fraudulent accounting and also the big losses resulting from investors stupidly putting billionaires into web, billions into web van and uh, pets.com is that so many people suffered. They suffered so much. There was a great deal of pain caused by these really, really bad decisions by leaders. And what I care about is utilitarian, which is doing the most good for the most number. And so I decided my best efforts are going to be spent on helping leaders make better decisions, because as a result of that, there, there would be much less suffering and much more flourishing in the world. So my end goal, my passion, is to help leaders make better decisions around the world, the country, in the US, around the world, for them to be using these techniques in such a way that they will make better decisions, avoid career disasters for themselves and business disasters for their organizations, and therefore avoid suffering for everyone around them, their employees, there's other stakeholders, and increase flourishing, increase their well-being for everyone around them. So that's my passion, that's my goal, that's what I want to see with this book and all of my broader work.
2: Wow. So you know, I normally end my interview by asking uh, my mission statement as a question. I would say, "How do you use your difference to make a difference?" But I feel like you just answered that question. <laughs> yes, so, I did. I so, did. <laughs>
0: so, so
2: there's that. But okay, then tell us where we can find your book because that's a beautiful sure. mission. You You, your sounds like it values compassion and. And you're, I, you're very much. To get that,
1: that's 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 what that's what I'm ba- that, that's what I base all my work in, kind of helping people reduce suffering, increase flourishing, through using my skills in teaching effective decision making, emotional and social intelligence. Yes. Yeah, so people can find my book in bookstores everywhere. It's available widely. It's published by Career Press, so it's a traditional publishing house and. It's available in your physical bookstores. It's available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, other bookstores near you. So, again, the book is called Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. And folks can find out more about me, more about the, they can re- get free resources. They can check out my consulting, coaching, speaking, and training at my website called DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Again, Disaster Avoidance Experts com and you'll see a store there and there's many more manuals and so on that you can check out if you want to buy stuff and of course there's lots of free resources. So and if you have any questions about anything I've said here on the show so far, please email me at Gleb G L E B at disasteravoidanceexperts dot com. Again Glub DisasteravoidanceExperts dot and feel free to check to hook up with me on LinkedIn. That's Glub Sapurski And that's just my name, Dr. Gleb Saporsky on LinkedIn. Check me out there. I'll definitely put all
2: this in the show notes. And please, please check this book out. The Ford is written by Howard J. Ross, who's also been a guest on the show. And Mm -hmm. many of you love that episode. So make sure you check out the book. The book is called Never Go With Your Gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. Thank you for your time, Gleb. Thank you so much for having me on, Tayo. It's been a pleasure the pleasure is mine and ladies gentlemen and gender non-binary individuals till next time use your difference to make a difference
1: you've just been listening
2: to the As told by nomads podcast for more ways to reach out to tayo and to use your difference to make a difference head over to www.tayoroxen.com.